Lost and Sound is sponsored by Audio-Technica. This year is the company's 60th anniversary. Audio-Technica are a global but still family-run company that make affordable products because they believe that high-quality audio should be accessible to all. Their wireless earbuds are one of the best and most accessible ways to listen to Lost and Sound on, and it's through these that I've been listening to the artists you're about to hear today. So head on over to audiotechnica.com to check out all of their range of stuff. Okay, it's a it's a fresh morning in Berlin. I hope you're doing great. And you're listening to Lost and Sound. How's it going? I'm Paul Hamford. I'm a writer, an author, a presenter, and welcome to Lost in Sound, the podcast where we meet the innovators, the outsiders, the mavericks, the artists that do their own unique thing, and we talk about life and the things that inspire us to make the things that we make. Because beautiful things don't come out of a hierarchy of knowledge, but out of sharing. Past guests have included Peaches, Jim O'Rourke, Chili Gonzalez, Letitia Sadier, Ghost Poet, Nightmares on Wax, Ellen Alien, Jan Tiersen, and so, so, so many more. And today, you're going to hear a conversation I had with the trailblazing musician and now author, Mickey Berenyi. Head on over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Paul Hamford if you want to support the show. And my book, Coming to Berlin, is out now on Velocity Press. Right. How's it going? I hope you're having a really, really fantastic whatever you're doing today. It's I'm recording this on a Sunday morning. Um, this is a conversation I had about a week ago with someone I was incredibly excited to chat with, Mickey Berenyi, a real musical trailblazer and now an author of her memoir, Fingers Crossed, How Music Saved Me From Success, which is out, I believe, if you're listening to this podcast the week, it's it's come out this week. Now, this is really special because when I was about 17, 18, I saw her as one of the coolest people in this new world of indie music that I was getting into at the time. This was the very, very early 90s. Her band Lush were makers of ethereal jangly dreamy yet sort of citrus citrusy sharp pop music signed to 4ad the albums gala and spooky rode the wave of what was already in the music press termed a shoegaze a sound maybe an attitude too that in the decades since has become i guess kind of ubiquitous for inspiring generations of music makers with effects laden often distorted guitars and a certain kind of blurry dreamlike quality i remember at the time shoegaze the term came about out of critics commenting music critics commenting on the artists 
frequent looking at their feet on stage, actually looking at uh, effects boxes due to the amount of effects in in some of the band's music, not all of the band's music. And, and the name kind of stuck out of that and it's become its own thing. But that aside, Lush trod their own path. In 1996, the album Love Life was recorded at the height of Britpop and it features their biggest hits, Lady Killers, which listening back and we chat about this in the podcast it's a it's a bitingly sharp song that seems to sort of predate the notion of the soft boy by a, by a few decades i'm just reading the book at the moment and it's it's way more than a, a rock biog it, it's her story of growing up she writes about the bohemian lifestyle of a hungarian father her japanese mother's acting career and within that, the frequent relocation and parental neglect and the dark presence of her abusive Nazi grandmother, um, all through this, the route out became music. She said that making music was not for her, not out of wanting to be a great musician, but out of a desire to connect. And that's something that I feel that I've always related to in my life, that desire that music connects us over any kind of desire to be great like virtuoso or something so i was super excited to chat with her um it was one of these interviews that kind of for me personally connected up right back to formative experiences i had of getting into music and i know from some of the comments from you listeners that that might be the same too. Anyway, this is what happened when I had a chat with Mickey Berenyi. I'm loving reading the book at the moment. I have to admit, I haven't finished it yet. I'm, I'm on the ebook, which always takes a little bit longer to read because it's sort of within the time scale of, you know, looking at a screen kind of thing. But, but I'm yeah, absolutely... I hate reading off a screen. Yeah, yeah. Because like... you do it with emails all the time. And... Yeah, but a book. Mm. It just doesn't work for me. I don't know. I haven't got a Kindle either because it just doesn't make sense to me. I need the kind of the page turning. I know, you know, there's a weird thing about reading a book. Like even if it's really massive, there's a sort of element of knowing where you need to look back to. Mm. Like somehow that stays in there. So, And I do like hopping back and forth thinking, oh, I need to remind myself of what actually happened there. And (laughs) like that's quite a physical thing, I think. So, yeah. Reading off a screen just doesn't work. Yeah, and did you when you were writing it, did you have that in mind, the sort of sensation of how the words would be on the paper? Or, you know, was there any sort of sense as you're writing it of like, yes, I can imagine the chapter being like, you know, it forming as in a paper thing? Not really, because mm. I was completely inexperienced. So I was a bit like, oh, is this chapter really short? Should I be putting more in here or is that going to make it really drag? So I was feeling my way a lot of the time and relying on kind of feedback from the publisher and the agent to sort of keep me going. And, you know, it was a weird thing to do anyway because Mm. I'm used to anything creative. I'm used to it like being music and it's a band. You know, I'm not a solo artist, never want it to be. Mm. So that idea of doing something on your own with your name to it and do you know what I mean? Felt very, very weird. And I needed quite a lot of support. You know, there was a lot of panic. 
There was a lot of panic and I'm not a writer. What am I doing? Why am I doing this? This is insane. <laughs> yeah, because I, I can relate to that in, in terms of my own experiences that I, I published a book this year and and I I felt like um, there's this amazing sort of, well, not amazing, it's kind of quite an overwhelming sensation of feeling like an imposter that I got that, you know, I was writing about something that a lot more people have got more authority about than I have. And, uh, and so is, did you feel this kind of sort of sense of like, who am I to sort of talk about, like, you know, to, to sort of put a book out into the world? Or did it feel very natural that it was your time to tell this story? I mean, to be honest, I wouldn't have done it if I hadn't been asked. Mm. So it's not like I sat there thinking, I know what I'll do. I'll write a memoir and then look for a publisher. No, I had, I got approached first. Mm. And then I was initially like, no, this, this is not something I'm interested in. But then, I mean, basically I lost my job and then lockdown happened. And I thought, okay, maybe it is a bit kismet that this offer has come along. So so once I sort of, it, it always takes me a really long time to make up my mind to do these things. And then I sort of thought, all right, I'll do it. And then once I'm on board, I think, okay, now I, now it's just the how, you know, the mm. why has already been dealt with. At that stage, it was, well, what exactly that? What kind of a book am I going to write? Mm. And because I am not a massive reader of rock biogs, like the boys always used to read them on tour. Chris and Phil used to devour that stuff. And I'd occasionally mm. pick something up and just think, oh, this really isn't for me. You know, most <laughs> of those books. And I get it. I understand people love reading about the high times and hijinks of whatever rock and roll bands. But I just always thought, well, this is just a very, I mean, it's bollocks really, isn't it? It's just yeah. someone kind of with their war stories. Mm. And I'm not particularly interested in that. So it was always going to be a book that you know didn't that's not what I wanted to write so then I had to figure out what I do want to write and I do think that having read Viv Albertine's book and Tracy Thorne's books and you know even even other books you know like Kathy Valentine and even sort of Brick Smith and other women writers you know it I think with a lot of these books what I just felt was the bits that I really like are the childhood stuff and mm. the formative stuff and almost the the kind of initial stages. Like once people are kind of famous, it's all a bit boring to me. It could be any band with mm. any load of celebrities and it's kind of the same stuff really, isn't it? You know, I thought that that, you know, what was that? Um, uh, we Will Destroy You. Mm. You know, the Michaela Cole I love that, that so much, yeah. yeah. And it only occurred to me the other day that I thought actually that's kind of – that really resonated with me, that idea you can write about sort of quite traumatic events, but there's a sort of broader, you know, it's not just look mm. at this terrible thing that happened to me and I'm a victim of it. It's kind of, it sort of spins off into little complicated side issues of how, you know, you yourself can be quite horrible, if you know what I mean. Mm. Like, you know, she's sort of, you know, when one of her her sort of gay friend goes through something like that. That's but she's right. Much she's less totally sympathetic. snubs him, doesn't she, yeah. for a while? Yeah. yeah. And even her friend who kind of has that sort of threesome but feels like she, you know, is sort of bigging it up as like this exciting event, but actually there's something unpleasant there because she's been sort of hoodwinked into, you know, it just had yeah. all these subtleties that I thought actually that's kind of where I feel I'd want to be, that 
there are sort of quite traumatic events in the book, but it's not as simple as, oh, you know, look at my terrible life, this terrible thing happens. It's much mm. more complicated than that, that where where you're complicit, where you're where it actually affected how you behave to other people even and and took it out on them, you know. So yeah. So that's where I kind of ended up. Yeah. Well, I mean, what I've noticed so far is I haven't got to the band stuff yet, which is kind of weird because that's where my personal relationship with the music comes in. But what I have really, you know, what you're saying really resonates with my experiences of reading it in terms that also you're talking about things that must have been so incredibly harrowing to go through um, or such kind of like lifelong experiences. But you've actually, you know, it's so beautifully written, you know, it could be a, you know, it kind of feels like quite novelistic, you know, which again is quite different from a lot of the sort of what we're talking about, the kind of rock biogs where it's, you know, Neil Young stood by his Marshall amp, you know, and and, and stuff like that, you know, and I I think that's really, you know, in, in terms of unpacking things that you wanted to put in there, was it quite a difficult process to reflect on the past for you? I mean, yes and no, in that, you know, first of all, I was like an a, an avid diary writer. So I wrote a diary from when I was about 11, which kind of continued all the way through the band um, and all the way through my teenage years. So there's quite a lot there that's well documented, even down to like conversations and things. And but also that to be honest, I actually talk about a lot of that kind of stuff with friends like I've never it wasn't like opening some buried box where I've never discussed any of the, I mean it's funny enough I was literally on the phone to my mate Maxine who's in the book mm. this morning and she's just got her copy so she was talking about some of the teenage stuff and she was going like yeah I remember you talking about that and she was you know and so we were kind of reminiscing about some of the things that she felt that she remembers, but, mm. and even in conversations when we were grown up that we discussed, but extra elements that she said, God, I'd never sort of heard you frame it in that way. So, and I think that was key that although they're sort of things that I've talked about with friends, it's not like I'm sort of trying to immerse myself into a past that has been long buried. Mm. It's just that when you're talking to friends, you tend to sort of tell things in a way that maybe make you come out better or or are more palatable for people to hear so it was going back into the nitty-gritty and actually thinking okay I need to really wrestle with the truth of this mm-hmm. and so that was quite hard work because I don't think I realized quite how unhappy I was even as a teenager like I kind of did think I mean yeah a few bad things happened but it was fine <laughs> And I actually went back and looked at that stuff. I thought, okay, I don't think it was fine, actually. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a sort of real sense that, like you're saying there with your friend Maxine, that, you know, it it kind of passes this acid test then, doesn't it? Of, of, you know, of what your friends think that are kind of involved, you know, have appeared in various stages in your life, of of sort of like tallying the truth up, you know, and and, it goes, goes into what you're saying about I will destroy you just now about this kind of, being really honest with yourself was that comfortable to do to be to be honest um I, d- I wouldn't call it comfortable <laughs> I think <laughs> that is I'd the wrong call word, it, sorry <laughs> I mean possibly necessary because I did think look if I'm going to talk about you know the way my dad was or the way my stepdad was or even people in the band and and the things that I found difficult to deal with I can't really say all that stuff without revealing what I was like as well, Mm. you know, and why 
why those things happened, you know, because I don't really want, you know, even if you get to the later stuff when, you know, the Brit pop and where I start to get quite disillusioned with it, you know, the thing that worried me is that people would read these things and go, oh my God, you know, there's an anecdote about X, Y, Brit pop person and they're a horrible person and they were mm. horrible to Mickey and blah, blah. And I'm like, no, that's not what it is. I was in a bad place. I was thin skinned. I happened to meet that person yeah. when they were being a bit of a dick or something. But it's it's more about that environment. You know, my stepdad, you know, he was a problematic person, but mm. it's balance. You know, it was, you know, he was lumbered with me, who was a right fucking brat, you know, and telling him <laughs> to fuck off. And do you know what I mean? It's not like I was an easy child to manage. Mm. So there's a sort of, look, it's, I mean, as you say, it's more novelistic, I suppose, in that way, because I do try and round out the other characters in it so that, you mm. you know, it's not just me with this stuff happening to me. There's a kind of context and an overview and there is a sort of narrative to it that unfolds. Yeah, I, I, I you know, you, like you mentioned about your your dad as well. And um, yeah, he, you know, he does come across from a, from from reading his perspective as being a very, very rounded person. Like, you know, obviously there's a lot of things that go on, but, you know, you, you, I never get the feeling that you're, it's like a kind of Mickey deals the dirt kind of book, you know, it, yeah. it's, it's very rounded. Good, because that's what I wanted, you know. I mean, I'm not saying not everybody feels that way, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I've had some feedback that was, quite negative but you know I have sort of said look it's an autobiography mm. you know at the end of the day it's always going to be from my perspective and you know someone else will have quite a different take on how those you know events affected them you know yeah <laughs> that I might be completely blithely ignorant of you know what I mean mm. so it's never going to be a full picture but you know, I guess that wasn't the point. I wasn't trying to write a journalistic overview of Lush, yeah. you know, and a history of. It's a very, very, from a specific point of view, for that's, sure. That's the, the, yeah, that's, I definitely relate to that. Definitely feel that reading it. And um, one thing I really kind of connected with, because I got into Lush in the very early 90s, about the same time as I got into like a lot of the other bands that kind of came through that time and it was it was very much like a sort of what you said about the you know that you didn't form lush out of a desire to be a musician so much as out of a desire to kind of connect with people there's something that i related to and a lot of people i know related to in terms that there was a great community at that time of you know people writing band names on the back of german army jackets and i remember that and reading the enemy every week about it and and i wanted to kind of ask you about like this kind of sense of community through music and how you first felt this kind of connection and, and what the music meant to you i mean i think because i had quite a disrupted family background you know, I was an only child. My parents had split up. My mum moved to America. I didn't have, you know, my I didn't have any kind of cousins or aunts or uncles or anybody. You know what I mean? So with tiny, tiny family, like it was just me and my dad and my gran in London. Um, so I think I was always looking for a kind of, you know, a second family, you know, to stabilise that kind of influence. And I think at school as well, you know, 
that was always quite problematic because we moved a lot. So by the time I'd established friendships, I'd be sent to another school. And then even at Queen's College where I met Emma and everybody, you know, I think, you know, girls at that kind of age between 14, 15, you know, it's quite turbulent, like female Mm. friendships at that age, you fall out and then it's just exhausting. So I think I was always looking for another family of like something. So I think going into that gig world, you know, writing a fanzine where that was a community of people Mm. and then gigs where you do see the same faces, you know, week after week and you don't really know them well enough to be swapping numbers and going around their house or even living locally to them. But there's a kind of, you know, it's like going to fucking church or something, isn't it? Mm. Like, this, <laughs> you know, they're going to be downstairs at the Clarendon next week. So you, kind yeah. of, you can rock up and, and there's just like these people that you can fall into conversation with. And then, you know, you might even go to like a party afterwards or or just be standing at a night bus stop for half the night with them. And mm. all these little kind of, you know, friendships and and then one opportunity leads to another because you get talking to people and they're like going oh yeah you know we're doing this band and do you want to be part of it or you know so the opportunity and also don't forget there was very high unemployment at the time Mm -hmm. um that kind of you know mid-80s period it was quite common for people to be either students or on the dole so they were available all day half Mm -hmm. the time you know you'd you could meet up and hang out in some cafe in Tottenham Court Road and drink a cup of coffee for like four hours. And, you know, there was a lot of that kind of um, potential for sort of making mm. friends and sometimes just being in a scene for like what might be a matter of a few months before you move on to another. But, so it's all quite fluid. And I I just found that brilliant. And, and London as well, you know, mm. the fact that I met people at North London Poly, like people who ended up being in Lush. and But at the same time, people who were at gigs, um, different scenes of gigs. It was so factional mm. then, you know, like, so there was just so much opportunity to actually, you know, fall in with people. And I think I've always relied on, you know, having that kind of camaraderie to actually instigate things, whether that's a fanzine or a band mm. or a, a club or a whatever project you want to do that there's people just you know quite casually go yeah I'll do that Mm. (laughs) (laughs) there's no auditions or applications you're like yeah yeah fine let's just give it a go which is kind of a great breeding ground you know for creativity because you can just try and fail there's not some massive deal to it or huge Mm. commitment you know it either happens and if it doesn't there'll be something else you know yeah, I love that. And and I mean, there's one line in, in the book where you're talking about um, a teacher referring to you and your gang of friends as the funeral brigade. And uh, and so I'm, I'm sort of like talking about the kind of music at the time and you kind of obviously sort of like the image of the funeral brigade is a kind of sort of post-goffy kind of stuff like that. But it's, it was a really interesting time as well because it seemed like, you know, when you were kind of lush was forming or even before then, it was like the precipice between like, cause you also mentioned 
going along Tottenham Court Road and bumping, recognizing people from like the Thompson twins and <laughs> and and not Black Lace. Who was not wasn't Black Lace? It was um, Buck Fizz. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm sure they're really happy I compared them, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but um, and having this kind of pu- you know pure '80s pop, but also obviously at the same time as that there was like the kind of you know alternative 80s pop emerging but and then when I think of Lush and you know Ride and and Slow Dive and bands like that it does feel very 90s and so did it feel like there was a kind of a change of guard or a sort of a change of attitude to as you were kind of moving through your teens towards music? I mean yeah I think that you know, it's quite funny when you mentioned that kind of celebrity spotting that we used to be, <clears throat> you know, if you can imagine this like bunch of kind of 15-year-old girls with their ridiculous home haircuts and army jackets, as you say, covered in band logos and names. And But again, London being just rife with people. And, you know, the thing you have to remember as well is that quite famous people just used to get the tube. You know, it wasn't this sort of celebrity culture of like bodyguards and stuff. I mean, you would literally see like Nick Hayward or something Mm. like on the central line and you'd be nudging each other going, oh, my God, oh, my God. You know, Um, I can remember seeing just Spandau Ballet just sort of walking down the street. You know what I mean? Mm. It wasn't like these sort of protected VIP environs and so all of it was very accessible. And I think that the 80s was more, it probably was quite more open in that way. And also there was a, a very, there was a kind of, you know, separation of huge, huge famous pop stars who mm-hmm. were like, you know, massive bands. And also just a load, you know, like a band like Bananarama or the Fun Boy 3 still felt a bit, alternative do you know what I mean even though they were on top of the pops Mm. they still just walked around and went to gigs and did their stuff and and the same with even when we went less into the pop realms but you know if you went to see XNR Deutschland Nick Cave would be there and the Cocteau Twins and Mm. all sorts of 4AD label mates just at the bar having a drink and there wasn't that kind of you know I don't know, that separation so much. And also I think pe- like fans did appreciate that these people weren't mobbed by people mm. who were like trying to grab their hair or stuff. It was all quite cool and casual. I mean, we were nudging each other. Like, <laughs> oh my God, it's, it's Liz Fraser, look, look. But, you know, I can remember going to see the Smiths in like, where was it? It was like Norwich town hall or somewhere Mm. I mean there was probably only about 30 people there and you know they all came out and had a chat afterwards you know it was just so it wasn't really and I think what happened was when we when Lush started to play right around we first started playing gigs was when there was a that there was already a bit of a shift So I think already the music papers had quite a different attitude. There was a sort of very swift, you know, kind of putting people on the covers before they'd even released a record. You know, Mm. it was already switching into that. And there was an expectation of these bands to be absolutely amazing when they clearly weren't yet. You know, they were still kind of starting out Mm. and we definitely fell victim to that. But, you know, I'm not going to deny that it was great. It, you know, it felt like, wow, you know, we've got a huge review in the Melody Maker or something. I mean, it felt good. But I think it it 
created its own pressures, you know, and a very, very swift backlash because we just couldn't match up to what the expectations were. And so we were very lucky to sign to 4AD because that kind of gave a real balanced thing, kudos and a guiding hand and a certain amount of protection as well. Mm. It's it's really interesting that you mentioned about the press there because it did seem to be like there was a really symbiotic relationship between Lush and the music press and and just in you know in terms of like some things felt that they were very much created by the music press like sort of I remember like the word and it wasn't referring to you but the the word shoegaze being just like a kind of a put down of the, the people looking at their effects pedals and and then I, I think was it credited to you or or to, to a, a journalist towards Lush about also for a while it was the scene that celebrates itself as, oh no, that was Steve Sutherland. Steve yeah. Sutherland, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and so there seemed to be like you know, on one hand you're being put on the cover, and then on the other hand, and obviously like a lot of journalists are also very enthusiastic fans of sort of like just gigs and the music and 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 kind of coming from similar backgrounds. But then on the other hand, there's a sort of like you were saying, there's a backlash and and stuff. Um, but did it feel quite sort of weird and sort of maybe even incestuous that the kind of critics the the involvement of critics within this or did you think they were kind of there was more to it than that I mean I think I think when I was just going to gigs and in that scene I just took for granted that it was just this huge kind of I didn't really take into consideration the kind of factional you know backstabbing jostling for Mm. supremacy like it just completely passed me by Mm. and when you see it written down in black and white in a paper that's when I started to realise that, okay, there's more to this because first of all, you've obviously got the melody maker and the NME. I mean, sounds were a bit out of it in that respect, Mm. but those two in particular, very much kind of sort of antagonistic towards each other. And so if one paper championed a band, the other one would slag them off. And, you know, it's like you're getting caught in these little petty sort of rivalries and, you know, even the way the gossip column would be written that made it look like, you know, I think probably if you were reading that newspaper in, you know, anywhere apart from London, you thought, oh, look at these twats all hanging out together like they think they're sort of someone special. And it's like, I'm not being funny, but you're literally talking about the bar at the underworld, right? Mm. This isn't like a VIP area where we're all swigging champagne. It's literally that half of these people aren't even talking to each other. They don't even know each other. They just happen to be at mm. the bar for a gig. This is not a star-studded occasion, but that's the way it comes across in the press. And the press used to, I mean, I get it. You know, I do mm. forgive it. I think there was a sort of, there was almost like a trope. Like if you did an interview with either of those papers, there was always a section where they asked you what you thought of other bands, right? Mm. And you'd have a chat and they go, oh, what do you think of Silverfish or what do you think of Ride or blah, blah, blah. And you'd sit there and by then, bear in mind, you're probably like a few pints down. So you're being more indiscreet. And then they print it in a way that makes it look like you've just said that off your own bat. They don't print the leading question. So it makes it look like you've been dying to do this interview so you can slag off a load of other bands, Mm. which in itself then creates a backlash and you get a letters page full of like, oh, why were they slagging off that band? They're shit and the other, and so it goes. But obviously that kind of generates sales, Mm. you know, in the way that clickbait does. You know, I just think in so many ways the press were, you know, I I don't find the 
like the internet that much of a leap away mm. from how a lot of that press operated. It was quite tabloid and quite clickbaity. And, you know, it, it generated interest out of conflict a lot of the time. You know, that's what they mm. loved, which was, you know, the ultimate being the kind of blur versus oasis thing, you know, which, yes, all right, there might have been some competition between two those two bands, but my mm. God, was it absolutely exacerbated and exploded by the press who mm. loved it. You know, yes. and so you can see that in microcosm much earlier on. Yeah, it, it's weird because I, I mean, because I was growing up in Dorset, and um, so I was reading the press and loving the music. But I like what you're saying. It kind of actually sort of rings so true to like my experiences. Is, is what happened when it was sort of trickled down so I kind of believed all of that kind of thing about like the scene being this kind of like everyone knows each other and people making these really bold statements about other bands all the time because I didn't understand how journalists work by them and then it had like a bad effect when I got into bands myself and we had a little bit of attention because I didn't really know how to make music so I just knew how to speak from the way people have been mis misinterpreted their comments from the music press. So I remember my old band would always kind of tell me off for kind of slagging other bands off, like slagging the verve off. Cause I just, I thought that's how, that's how I'd been trained by the school of the music press. To, to do that. And it took me a while to go, hang on, you know, echo what you're saying really. <laughs> I mean, it is quite self-perpetuating, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, definitely. It took a little while to kind of get out of that up here. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, I'm, and then, you know, sort of moving, you sort of mentioned about Blow and Oasis there and like moving into the, the middle of the 90s, like I remember like um, a track like Lady Killers, for example, and, you know, sort of musically, it's it's sort of, you know, the lyrics are really at the front, you know, they're really, they're, you know, listening to it again this morning in a cafe over a coffee and they sort of like, in a way, you know, I can only talk as a cis identifying male. So I, I can only sort of, and I'm aware that that could almost be like a line from one of the guys in Lady Killers who's trying to kind of, you could go, I'm not like other guys, you know. <laughs> but, For sure. Um, yeah. But it, it's, it, in a way, it feels like the lyrics to that song have become even more pertinent now than they perhaps, or more, perhaps like there's more of an understanding now because of post Me Too. And, um, you know, now people are talking about these things and Britpop was quite male-centred, wasn't it? I, at the time, I got the feeling. Do you feel... At the time, you know, did you feel like you were doing something quite bold in writing that song? Um, I mean, not really, because I think I always wrote songs that were quite, um, you know, not that straightforward. You know, mm. I, I didn't write love songs that were straightforward, you know, um, and I think that I had quite a history of a lot of the bands. So, for instance, a song like Lady Killers, if it if what it probably really owes something to is something like the au pairs come again mm. you know i used to love the fact that the au pairs wrote songs that weren't necessarily about you know i mean they did write things like diet that's all about you know kind of the patriarchy and women you mm. know reading magazine women's magazines and cooking and being on like happy pills you know what i mean to mm. keep them in some sort of manacled state but they also massively took the piss out of what would then have been well it was pre pc and it was pre woke but mm. that kind of you know 
male feminist trying so hard and it's like oh give it a fucking rest you know and it's not meant to be like appalling me to behavior it's just tiresome mm. and it's just mm. quite comic to point that out because that's your experience and that's very much what I felt with lady killers you know they were not terrible people these mm. were not like people who need to be strung up and crucified it was just tiresome it's like blokes who think that they're actually on the right side and you're like mate you're doing the same thing they all do just admit it <laughs> 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 That's, did you um yeah and like um at that kind of time as well did you sort of notice like because you know also Britpop was just like really like you know again it was a lot more in your face than than the kind of sort of like the shoegaze kind of the more sort of cocteau twins influence of the of the kind of early early 90s kind of sound did you did you sort of enjoy that kind of time and those kind of sort of that more kind of stompy part of the 90s um, I mean, I I enjoyed a lot of the music, you know, mm. I, I didn't have a problem with, you know, the bands, the music, the blah, 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 you know, it's a scene like any other. I think it was just that the temperature very much changed. And I do think that, you know, look, don't get me wrong, there's plenty of bands who were in sort of shoegazy bands who were completely sexist twats. Do you know mm. what I mean? It's just that there was a kind of general... Um, acceptance that that is not cool to behave like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Whereas I think the tone was with Britpop that, yeah, let's celebrate being laddish, mm. you know, what's wrong? Like it's a bit of fun, you know, and actually it just, for me became, you know, I'm no sort of Mary Poppins. Do you know what I mean? I'm used to kind of blokes being Larry and, and, bad behavior and whatever you know you it, it's I'm not going to sit there and get all pearl clutching about it but what pissed me off is that back then you could go well he's a bit of a dick isn't he and you could talk about it and they'd go yeah I know he's he's a nice guy but he can be a bit of a prick this became like what are you talking about it's fine why have mm. you got a problem with that he's just having a laugh and I thought oh okay this is where we're at is it that I'm the humorless cow yeah. now even having a problem with this um and everyone and even people who I know would think the same way as me looking a bit uncomfortable because they don't want to put their head over the parapet and get shot down as a killjoy you know and then the assumption that everyone agrees with that kind of mentality and I didn't like it it made it really pissed me off I'm not gonna lie you know and I think that comes <laughs> it becomes obvious in the book because I do go on mm. a bit of a rant but again, it's not about individual people. It's just a general tone of, of where we, I could see the direction of travel and I could see that Britpop just, you know, masqueraded as being counterculture when I just thought it was totally validating the establishment, you know, yeah. crowned by all those people going to number 10 and, and mingling yeah. with, you know, and I get that it was born out of a good place. Mm. I get that those, you know, people felt that they could do some good and they could whatever, but you can never trust those fucking people. Do you know what I mean? I think mm. it's always a mistake. I remember that even with Red Wedge, yeah, you know, yeah. I see what you're doing. Nice try. But when that government fucks over a load of people, which they will do, mm. you're going to be left with egg on your face, you know, because they're using you. Yeah. They're totally using you and you can't even see it, you know. Yeah. 
I just found it, I found it quite aggressive as well. I mean, I did I did enjoy a lot of those bands. Like I um, I do to varying degrees or not, and I wouldn't consider all of the bands in this. I just mean the sort of the you know the, the kind of number ten Downing Street thing, the kind of bands involved directly within. But I, it kind of reminded me that what I loved about like the indie music initially is it felt like it was very inclusive for for people, and then suddenly you had like the school the the school bullies, you know suddenly had got a mod mod top, you know, and they were bustling and they were kicking off the skinny kid off the drums, you know, and sort of going like, come on, simplify that down a bit. And I, I just thought, you know, it, it kind of made it a little bit like sort of, oh, you know, I, I love the idea that everyone could be into a band, but I didn't like the way it kind of, they bullied, it was, it felt, yeah, it just felt like bullying, really. <laughs> I think anyone, I mean, I agree with you, you know, I think a lot of, <clears throat> you know, a lot of that kind of indie music, was quite outside of status yeah you know even a band like the smiths who i can remember like funnily enough when we were talking about john peel mm. you know i always remember him being quite baffled at that image of the smiths being these sort of miserable bedroom band mm. when he said like i've literally laughed out loud at their lyrics i think they're hilarious and i totally. felt the same yeah. I actually, you know, to me the smiths were like i say running around norwich town hall waving gladioli sliding around the floor and having an absolutely brilliant night it wasn't sort of you know glumly sort of mm. lacerating yourself it was a you know, stage invasions. They, that was like a part of Smith's gigs. Everyone used to get on the stage and go mentor. Yeah. I mean, I think there's something to the idea that, you know, back then, I do think there was a sort of inverted snobbery because, mm. you know, indie was very much defined as against the mainstream. So if people crossed over into it and went to a major label or suddenly they were mm. selling out the Brixton Academy or something, you would get a load of people sort of grumbling and like, oh, these like wankers have come in now. They're not our band anymore. And of course, I understand that, you know, bands don't want to play to the same handful of bloody people for their whole mm. careers. Of course, that's a great thing that they become popular. And it's always a bit heartbreaking when, you know, it's like having a mate at school and suddenly they become popular. It's like mm. you're not as important to them anymore. But that's, hey, that's the way it goes. So I never really had a, much of a problem with that. But I just think that, I personally felt that with Britpop, it was like the alternative actually got completely wiped out. Mm. I mean, it it didn't in that if you were into dance music, mm. you know, a lot of people drifted into that because that was where the underground was. And, you know, but if you enjoyed bands and that kind of music, it just became mainstream. So that that whole scene really shifted, I felt. Yeah. I mean, it's it's from from you know from your point of view right at the beginning of Lush and all throughout like you were signed to Four AD as you mentioned before and and so we're talking about like that kind of sense of indie ownership as well and and not selling out. Did you you must have felt like quite you know as someone that was sort of so into the music around you at the time, kind of being signed to Four AD is is it's like being signed to Mute or you know or, or something like that, isn't it? Did it must did you feel like wow, this is these are the people to be with? Oh, completely. I mean, I couldn't believe it when it was happening. I was like, seriously, they're going to sign us. That's insane. <laughs> but, um, you know, no, it was it was really, really important. I mean, I genuinely don't think that Lush would have have just lasted if it hadn't have been 
for, you know, I mean, we might have signed to rough trade and that might have, you know, been an equally rewarding experience. I have no idea. Mm. But I mean, certainly being in the kind of protected environs, as I felt it, of an independent mm. label that had their own kind of, you know, benchmark and kind of, you know, obviously it's still a business. You know, I get that people who were signed to indie labels would sort of go, oh, well, you know, people make out that that they're so noble and pure mm. and that's not the case. And, you know, of course it's still a business, but it was just felt, you know, much less swimming with sharks than being just on a on a huge kind of major label where success was the only barometer, you know, and I do mm. think that 4AD nurtured a lot of those bands i mean the cocteau twins put out some pretty obscure stuff in their time mm. you know as well as the 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 hits as they were mm. but even then you know i mean and and i just think there was also that there was that idea that all of those bands whether it was the cure or new order or all those bands that became huge eventually mm. they were nurtured for a very long time yeah. in that scene and with Britpop. There was no time to even, you know, all that stuff we were talking about, like going downstairs at the Clarendon and seeing a band mm. for, okay, at least you might get like six months of them being quite obscure. It was like they would literally be overnight. I think I remember mm. going to see like the Blue Tones or something and they I'd literally only heard of them a week before and the next gig it was like sold out and full of like A&R people and there was just mm. no time to even kind of, you know, have those bands and grow to love them before they were just kind of like, you know, thrown into the mainstream and expected to, you know, just start coining it in, really. Yeah, and um, it, it sort of felt that there was a sort of sense that it got to a point where you could kind of, it probably happened a few times, that the sort of labels or bands could kind of Frankenstein monster themselves, a Britpop band, by, you know, like, like you say, emerging so quickly, having a certain kind of references in the music, certain kinds of, you know, a certain kind of sound with it, you know, um, it so it did sort of feel like there was kind of a very very quickly. I mean, which is a shame because a lot of the best bands that came out of that era, but which is sort of happened to be in that era, you know. Um, but like you know, you ended up with something like oh fuck, it, I'm going to say it, menswear that were just sort of like this kind of you know, for whatever their intentions as human people that were making music, you know, um, ended up in a situation of just being this Frankenstein's monster of, of, of what the assumption of Britpop could be, you know. For sure. I mean, you know, when I first saw Menswear, I mean, I'm not going to lie, they were very, very competent musicians. Mm. They looked amazing, you know what I mean? And they had a real energy. Mm. But they weren't allowed, you know, to me, I thought I can imagine seeing a band like this around the time of that kind of garage scene with the milkshakes and the prisoners mm. and, you know, that kind of, you know, their style was different, but still, you know, fitting in with that somehow where you would have been able to see them at the, you know, Tufnell Park Tavern for about six months before they got any traction. There was no time for that. It was instantly, you know, right, you've got seven songs that's it. We're going to just, <laughs> we're just going to absolutely thrust you onto the top level. And I just think individually that was actually too much for them. I think the band, you know, I actually feel sorry for them, you know, and they were so loathed because the press yeah. were instantly ridiculing them. And then everybody was like, oh, they're shit and all that. And I just don't think they deserved it, you know, mm. but when you elevate bands to that level, there's no time for them to even build up a 
core support of people who actually really love them and will defend them. They're just mm. thrown into the kind of, you know, in amongst the wolves. And I'm sure it worked for some bands. I'm sure that, you know, that race and very quick pace, mm. you know, worked for them. But I think for, for a lot of people, I think, who go into music, that's not really how they're built. You know, yeah. it's probably very different now. But I always associated people who are in bands as being quite fragile and, mm. you know, outsider. And I don't think that that environment paid any any kind of heed to that at all you know so i'm sorry no go on yeah and it it, it's kind of i mean it fits into what you were saying as well about um you know the 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 sort of the we're talking about the brit pops and the sort of fierceness of the attitude of some brit pop bands and it contrasting with you know the sensitive nature of what attracts people to music but also at the same time as that um the idea of a record label offering a band like menswear so much you know or the the, the prospect of such sort of potential fame or whatever in a way it's like because i've been in that situation before and and it's like it's like a massive hug or you know it's, it's like a prospect of a massive hug and and it's like they're, they're dangling um the idea of achieving everything you've wanted to so I, I honestly don't blame a band any band for kind of jumping jumping into that you know oh, situation god you know? i mean if i'd have been offered that i'd have bloody jumped at the chance there's no mm. question that's why i kind of think I, you know we were very lucky to be on a label like 4ad where that just wasn't going to that wasn't you know their aim it wasn't what mm. they wanted to do i mean that had its problems as as well because once that landscape changed you know it really was like well if you don't play that game you're just going to be left behind mm. and and eventually dumped, you know. So I think 4AD had to go through a, a very big transition as well, mm. you know, with, not least with Ivo just thinking I can't deal with this anymore and jumping shit, basically. Yeah. Um, so I think there was a, a massive shift in the way that, you know, alternative, independent, however you want to couch it, that that just wasn't the business that that, it, it had been you know throughout mm. the preceding decade and um yeah I don't think I was alone in in mourning that really yeah but it's, it's, it's interesting because like looking at things now um the kind of sounds and textures and and you know like you know everything from the way the you know um, on early lush singles the way the vocals would play and the guitars and everything like that um that whole kind of sound has become like a sound in itself. And, you know, talking about bands on 4AD and 4AD survival, and there are artists on 4AD now, and just artists that people listen to now, that, you know, like the, the whole idea of shoegaze as a sort of, as a sort of just a, everyone knows what you mean as a sound, you know, uh, it feels like it's kind of really gone on and sort of had its own children and, and, develop something. Do you ever kind of listen to something, you know, and go, hang on a minute, that sounds a bit like us. <laughs> I mean, I'm not very good at, at drawing those sort of analogies. I think with your own music, it's really difficult. Yeah. Um, like, uh, you know, I can do it with like, you know, I can actually listen to something and think, oh, God, that really reminds me of Ride or mm. that feel, you know what I mean? But I think with your own music, I, I usually get it pointed out to me and I'll listen, I'll go, really? Can't really hear that. So. But I think when you're on the inside of your own songs, it's very difficult to be mm. that objective about them. So 
<clears throat> and I always felt I'm not I'm also not very good at you know looking at bands as part of a scene you know even when talk people talk about Britpop I think well I don't really understand how salad are like menswear I don't I actually don't understand if those two records were made in like even like a few years apart you wouldn't be saying that mm. so and I get that that things are grouped together because of a zeitgeist or whatever, but I just can't hear it in the actual music. Mm. So I think a lot of the lush sound was, you know, clearly we work with Robin Guthrie, who, you know, puts his stamp on all his records. Mm. And to a lot of people, they criticise that. And it's like, oh, bloody Robin, he has to sort of, you know, spread his Cocteau twins kind of spaffing all over stuff. But it's like, look, that's why we worked with him. That's why mm. people work with him. You know, it wasn't done against our will. Like, you know, we knew what we were going to get. And we always work with producers that would add a kind of sound. Because to be honest with you, I think the way that me and Emma Rowe were, they were kind of pop songs. Mm. And you could have recorded them in a multitude of different ways and they would have sounded quite different. You know, what tied them together was clearly some sort of, you know, way that we wrote songs, also the way that we played and sang. Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, you didn't need to have all those effects. You could have gone a different route, which we kind of did, I suppose, with Love Life, you know, when you mm -hmm. compare that to Spooky. So whereas I think a lot of shoegaze bands, it's much more of a sonic experience. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the sound of it is so, so imbued in the kind of construction of the songs. Mm. I'm, I was never really sure that that was the case with Lush. That's a, uh, that, that does make, yeah, I can totally kind of brings a lot of clarity to me over that, actually. Yeah, that's really interesting. And like, because at the moment you're, so I saw on, on I think it's on a Facebook post that you're uh, getting a little bit ready to play some of these songs again next week. <laughs> how, how does that feel? <laughs> Um, a bit weird, like um, uh, I did, I tell you what, I did a thing with, um, I think it was Ted Kessler's book launch and he said, oh, do you want to, oh no, I think he was doing a thing with the new queue or something. So I came along and did a bit of a chat and I played a couple of songs just with a guitar mm. on his suggestion. And I think it was okay, but I'm just so far out of my comfort zone doing that. I just really cringe do you know what I mean so you know again it was like well you know when you do the launch it'll be really good to have a bit of music so mm. I've got Moose and Ollie on board so it's still going to be very stripped back mm. and you know it it we'll see how it goes I don't know but of course Moose is sort of like you know and I have said to him look you don't have to play exactly what Emma played okay mm. it's like it will it will be slightly moosified. <laughs> just yeah. warning people. Yeah. Um, and you know, I can see that it's a nice thing. We'll see how it goes. I mean, I'm I'm always a bit kind of oh god about these things. You know, mm. um, I'm not I'm not a kind of like hey yeah I'm just going to turn up with my acoustic guitar and just sort of like launch into a song. That is not the person that I am. Yeah, yeah. So so I'm a little bit nervous about it, but hey. Do you, do you enjoy getting out of the comfort zone once you've actually done it? Or is it is it or do you prefer to kind of just be a little bit more caustic about stuff, do you think? I think with music, you know, part of it is that 
and this is not some sort of humble fucking humility, but I'm not an amazing musician. You know, I was chatting with someone who's a singer the other day and I was like, look, if you've got this great voice and you're just waiting for some medium to express that and you happen to meet the right songwriters or mm. you finally get a producer that can work with you. I don't have that. Okay. I have like a, a sort of situation where, you know, no one else would have, we, we didn't have the balls to ask a great singer to join mm. the band um, we were quite like, oh God, we're a bit shit, you know, we need we're finding our way. But we weren't great singers either. So I don't have that confidence of, you know, someone going, Oh, why don't you just turn up and sing? I mean, that's what you do, mm. isn't it? And it's like, I know, but I'm not a great singer. That song needs a support structure around it to make it sound good. Mm. And you know, it's as best to be aware of that, I think, <laughs> rather than put people through what yeah. will just be a sort of substandard performance. So I will do my best to make these songs sound interesting and, and unique in their own way, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit like the wedding thing, isn't it? Like, say you're, you're at a wedding and someone asks, what do you do? And if you say, I'm a singer, they or like I'm a, I play an instrument, they presume that you you can kind of knock out you know, like Frank Sinatra or something like that. They do go, well, I'm, I'm not really that kind of singer, you know. Exactly, exactly. Like you're dying to perform as well, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, <laughs> the drop of a hat. <laughs> like, <you know. laughs> that was Mickey Berenyi chatting with me, Paul Hanford, for Lost and Sound. We had that conversation. It was actually on the day of the Queen's funeral, actually, that we had that. So that was, what was that? That was about a week ago now or something, uh, depending on what when you're listening to this. Uh, thanks so much, Mickey, for the chat. Um, still as cool, as cool as ever. Fingers crossed, How Music Saved Me From Success, her memoir, is published by 9-8 Books on 29th of September. Thanks to ESO for the music, the Lost and Sound music. Uh, Lost and Sound is presented and produced and all of that by me, Paul Hamford. My book, Coming to Berlin, is out now on Velocity Press. This episode was sponsored by Audio-Technica, makers of high-quality audio accessible to all headphones, turntables, cartridges, microphones. This year, it's their 60th anniversary, and I am been editing i am <laughs> i have been editing this podcast on the lovely earbuds so head on over to audiotechnica.com wherever you are in the world and check out their stuff and it only goes for me to say i hope you have a really fucking lovely day and i'll speak to you soon <laughs>